to see for yourselves one of the most amazing events. When is this great experiment for me? Impervious to heat, impossible to move. Is it human or inhuman? Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? It's time for the Beaky Drummy Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Hello, and welcome to the Geeky Brummy Podcast. Joining me today, Mr. Keith Bloomfield. Hello, Ryan. Mr. Lee Price. Hello. And Mr. Guy Helford. And it is myself, your host, Mr. Ryan Barish. How are we all this week? Guy, what have you been up to this week? Uh, I don't know, like, not a lot. Um, it's weird, actually. It's so unlike me not to tell a story. Um, I'll tell you what, actually, this morning I was at a busy train... You know when a train's late and then like so many people ram onto a train, yeah, and like it's just it's just like glue, you know, holding people together. I couldn't get onto the train. Anyway, there's a, there's a woman on the train. She's getting squashed herself, but she sat, stood there with a smirk on her face, like amused by everybody else who can't get on the train. So I stood there giving her the dirtiest look to the point where she felt so uncomfortable. And then when she tried to move away, I moved to another position so she could carry on seeing the dirty look that she well and truly had earned herself by being smug that she'd gotten onto a busy train. Well, do you know what? You're so smug that like when you get to work and you're all sweaty, Let's see who's laughing then. Like what? I don't understand why you'd be smug about like pe- people can't get on the train. So even commuting rush hour is never as bad as a comic con train. Uh, well, yeah, I would imagine <laughs> that is a pretty, you know, somebody wearing six foot wings stood in the middle of the aisle, getting slapped, slapping them around people's faces. People with bulky costumes. I feel like general, mate, yeah, not to alienate our listeners here, but hygiene maybe levels are like, you know, I'd say they're not more, the strongest at this point of the day. I'd say they're probably slightly more relaxed than your usual commuter train, to be, to be fair. Mm. Mm. But I was just, I was not impressed by this woman's um, smug smile, you know. How, how dare she um, <laughs> smugly smile at people who haven't got on the train. But Keith, you know how, like, last time we did a show together, we talked about loud clappers and how they annoy me, and you were amused by the concept of loud clappers? In, in a crowd of above five, yeah, I was amused by the whole idea of a loud clapper. Right, I've got a new one for you, which is annoying me. It's not why it's rubbish now, exactly, but I'll give you this one. Sideways, sideways walkers. So these are people... Perhaps, yeah. yeah. <laughs> these are people that, when they walk... They kind of do this kind of like, they can't walk in a straight line. So you need like, you walk and you ch- if you change direction, you still kind of like, you walk in a straight line in that direction. So you know, you're just walking towards a shop, but you kind of move in that direction, but you walk straight on towards. But people who kind of just kind of like, walk towards where they're going like this, like sideways, like, no. like they're just walking like diagonally for some reason. There is worse than that. There is the stop and pivot people. Stop and what? Stop and pivot. So you walk stop it, and pivot? So people, you're walking behind people, they get to a shop they want to go in. They don't go to the side to be near the door. Mm-hmm. They just stop in the middle of the middle of the pathway, or middle of the walk, sidewalk, depending which country you're from. Stop, pivot, and turn in. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like, so you could have moved to the side where people are blatantly walking through, but now you're stood in the middle, you've stopped dead. And then you're pivoting around and people are trying worse, to get around you. Surely worse than that is the people who stop, pivot, and just look at what they're... 
com- potentially going in conversations in doorways. Mm. Yeah, this Aren't is just always, becoming why it's for you. Now. Always tell these people to move out of the way, though. It's like simple yeah. But the side, the sideways walk is a new thing. I don't understand. Like people do it when they get off the train, so they kind of walk up from like where I get off the train in a sideways manner. It's kind of just walking a straight line. I don't understand this kind of like diagonal thing that you're doing because if you carry on walking like that, you're going to end up in the road. Not my fault. If you get hit by a car. Variable walking speed, people as well. Yeah, no, I, I slow walkers like yeah. I don't mind slow walkers if they are a constant speed. It's people who walk fast and slow down. It's like cheap bigger speed. Mm. So they can attempt to get round you then. Not yeah, because I walk quite quickly, so I like to get out of the way and you know keep moving really quickly. But you know, I know I get what you're saying. No. Just, just people in general. It just it sounds like you you, you want to get that kind of perfect set of a person who does sideways walking. In a group of reservoir dog walkers doing the variable speed. <laughs> uh, and then pivoting like, for each corner. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, that'd be incredible. I just feel like I just feel like over the past couple of weeks since we last did the show, like they've really they've gotten to me. Like it's just it's just frustrating. Um, and also people who, who wait for lifts that aren't coming. So you like you stand behind a load of people and they they they're just stood there doing nothing, thinking they wait for a lift and it's not we talk about lifts a lot on the show, but this is this. See, a there's lot. two problems because I also hate people who press the lift button after I've already pressed it. Like my press isn't good enough for them. <laughs> but <laughs> did you what? Right, there's the fundamental flaw that you've got is actually pressing the button for someone. Yes. I have big headphones on, so genuinely, even if I could hear people, I ignore it when they say, "Oh, press this button, please." It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not a bellboy. You press your own button. I ain't going to that floor. You go where you press where you need to go. Hasn't it also been scientifically proven that the more buttons you press, the more you press the button, the faster things arrive because of that kind of like, you know, if you press it a lot, it'll come quicker. Well, there's this thing apparently with door closing. <laughs> still talking about a lift <laughs> Well, apparently there's this whole thing with the door close buttons and most lifts apparently don't actually do anything. They're just like a placebo effect for people to hit. Yeah, I can see that. It's a paranoia thing. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm always hitting the button, so I don't want anybody else to get on the lift with me. Yes. Oh, hang on a minute. We haven't talked about that, have we? I got stuck in a lift. There we go. That's what happened to me. You totally reminded me that is something that it happened to me. took long enough for it to trick Wow. Them, yeah, so all the nonsense we've been on for. Yes, I got stuck in a lift at New Street Station, and quite bluntly, I lost my beep. I was... Oh, my God. I, I'm claustrophobic. I panicked. The moment they said oh, the lifts are going to take half an hour to get fixed, I started shouting my mouth off to, on, like, I need to get out of this lift now. Yeah. And if I don't get out of this lift now, I'm going to call the fire brigade and I don't care if the damn doors in. <laughs> Literally, it was like a full-on Baruch assault moment. Like, I needed out of that lift. You know that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Devil, the devil where yeah. we get stuck in a lift with the devil? I can imagine that's what other people were feeling. When oh, you, were I, oh, you, just, I, you know, like, you just start panicking at that point. Like, like about the food situation. What if I need a slash? A large girl was leaning against me. Could, you know, I didn't need that. On the plus side, though, I must admit, when Guy announced this in the group chat, the number of like comedic lift gifts that then appeared <laughs> were quite cool. I quite enjoyed yeah, I, that. I saw them too late to feel the need to contribute to that. But, and, then, yeah. and then was followed by a message of I'm claustrophobic. <laughs> And then more lift gifts. <laughs> yeah, but genuinely, I came out and I was literally shaking. It was the worst experience I've ever had. Like I, I've always feared it, and then to actually be involved. In, and that's certainly right to be a fat git and not getting the. I was going to say, stairs. how many, how many floors was it? One. 
Was there an escalator nearby that he could have all equally have used? Yeah. So it was my own fault. As Guy, over over the three years that we've been doing this, and over that time, the amount of tales Guy has regaled to us of his life, I am becoming more and more convinced that I am just a character in his Truman show. <laughs> that I'm just, a, I'm just an NPC in the background. more one foot in the grave than the Truman show. <laughs> Guy is angry at everything, and everything conspires to ruin Guy's life. Um, One I, day he will open his front door, and there'll be 400 gnomes outside. <laughs> He'll be buried in his back garden with his head sticking out. His neighbour will install blinds in one of them. <laughs> I mean, I did get home, and I said to Laura, like, why does this always happen to me? Like, why, why do I always find myself in these situations? Because they know you're on a podcast, and you need a story every week. Maybe. Also, <laughs> why is Mike and the Mechanics on my TV right now? Why are we allowing this to happen? Is this the one where his dogs died or something? Oh, that's sad. Don't say that. Well, it's a quite that. it's an impressive pet cemetery if it is. Well, I saw a dog earlier in the music video, and now they're there without the dog in a cemetery. I don't know. I don't know about me anyway. Yes, Keith, what have you been up to this week? Uh, this week, I've been mostly happy. Very, uh, well, very as, as a result, I was of, happy when I saw you. As a result of various announcements, announcements that have been made over the uh, past week uh, about um, some petitions that may be going on. No, well, you know, that I have no influence over that. But the, one of the best things was um, last week the fact that uh, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan announced that they were actually going to make Bill and Ted face the music this year for at least next year. The original Death is back as well. And William Sadler is also back, yeah. Well, obviously, he's the bassist, you know. I don't know how they're going to get around the Rufus issue. Well, they have said they're not going to recast uh, George Carlin, so... That's good. And um, they, they should just do a tribute to George in that yeah. Uh, thing. But yeah, I'm, very, I'm looking forward to seeing um, more Keanu on the big screen. Uh, and you have the John, John Wick, Wick 3 trailer as the well. A new John Wick trailer, a new bunch of John Wick posters, <laughs> which are very nice. Yeah. That was very cool. I enjoyed most of that. I uh, feel like I feel like Keith is like my Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I wish I was. Keanu. I think my my tweet didn't get enough love for the John Wick three trailer. Didn't I, I called out all the animals in there. There was dogs. There were pigeons. There was horses. Pigeons. Yeah. Yes. Are they safe? Do they need rescuing? <laughs> Lawrence Fitchburn was rescuing the pigeons. Good in a cardboard box. I hope the Bowery King. Yeah. You've I mean, got a- Iron Chef in there as well. Mark Dacascos. What more could you want from a John Wick? Crying Freeman, not Iron Chef. Like, <laughs> more people will know him for Iron Chef than Crying Freeman. More people should know him as Crying Freeman. But that was never the, released in the states. The fact that that's why we're in the situation we are in this country because people don't know Crying Freeman more than <laughs> Iron Chef. It's shocking. I don't know what he's on about. Do you? No, it's it's a kung fu movie. Movie, but it's a French language kung fu movie, right? And it never okay. got released in the states, right? Okay. It's based on a, a, a manga and anime. Is it uh, one I need to add to the expensive Blu-ray? Uh, no, but you'd be better off adding another film of his, which is called Brotherhood of the Wolf. Which oh, is that's a French an awesome werewolf movie, which is okay. pretty good. Uh, yeah, and then what, was it, what? There were some other things as well. Like, now I've we've gone off on a tangent. I can't remember what the other things was. Uh, Didn't you do a terrible like, Universal Soldier rip-off as well? Oh, yeah, everybody's done a terrible Universal Soldier uh, rip-off. I've done career. one. <laughs> I, I did one. I did that after. But he's an amazing martial artist. Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a dude. Um, and he's also the Iron Chef in America. Yeah. Bell Pepper! <laughs> Basically, he's the American version of Ainsley Harriet. 
which is which is an interesting prospect because what we should do is we should make like a British version of John Wick and one of his villain characters is Ainsley Harriet. That's what it is. <laughs> the, the, the English version of John Wick is an, a, a, a highly paid assassin whose villains are all TV celebrity chefs. <laughs> Talking of Ainsley Harriet, does everybody know that he released a single many years ago? No. I am yes. unaware of this. this. This was before he was a famous TV chef. He did a single. Was he? This was before Ready Steady Cook. I'm actually going to find it and play a, a clip for people. God, that was a god awful show, wasn't it? <laughs> Ready Steady Cook. Like, What's going on? What Michael Borg got for number two of a single? What is this we're watching in the background? Every number two of the eighties with Mark Goodyear. Mark Goodyear, second rate DJ, so kind of appropriate. I love Michael Borg. <laughs> you love Michael I Borg. I really love Michael Borg. <laughs> that, that went around in a circle there. Like, <laughs> do you know what was gutting when I went to Cross recently? I left just before Borg came off and presented an awards one, and like Laura Messenger was like, "You just missed Bonus Borg." Call him Bonus Ball because he was in Toaster London and they referred to him as Bonus Ball. Once again, another check in the I'm in a guy's Truman show. <laughs> I love Michael Ball. On the way back from Crofts, I've got me cafetiere, <laughs> me £400 of French New Wave Blu rays. <laughs> the band was called Calypso Twins. Okay. And the song was called World Party. World Party. World Party. Okay. Kind of like House Party. It was him and a guy called Paul Barroso, who apparently is a great guy, according to the YouTube description. It's a good tune, that Ryan. It's great. Right? No. 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 He's not started singing yet. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm done. Turn it off. Guy's got this on vinyl. Treat me like a hole. I'll turn it off, Ryan. You've embarrassed yourself knowing that information. I, I have approximate knowledge of many things, guy. Well, it's good, 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 good for you. Good that you have that little bit of knowledge about Ainsley Harriet. Yes. He looked like he was going to on the playbus in the video. To be honest with you. I think it was around the playbus kind of, era. It kind of sounded like it as well. Yes. Off to meet the Wybird. <laughs> Anyway, Keith, what else have you been up to this week? Uh, I've been spending more money on games on eBay, but just because I wanted to pick it up, um, the Telltale Walking Dead collection, because uh, mm. I've been quite enjoying this season of Walking Dead on the TV, today, I quite like the Telltale games. Do they walk around and mope a lot, because people are dead, and occasionally... I think that's zombies. the people who are still alive walking around and mope yeah. a lot in that show. It's more my pace of game, it's like I watch things happen for five like minutes and then, make a sl- <laughs> so then, and then make a selection... Captain um, Quick Time. Yeah. <laughs> but I quite enjoyed the first two, Keith which I'd played. Will remember that. On my pl- I played on the PlayStation. I played the first two, but this has got the kind of new frontier and then the two short uh, pieces. So I, and then I want to get the final season because I quite enjoyed that, yeah. that series. It's a shame Telltale games aren't around anymore. Yeah, I've liked all of the, of the other games. The Guardians of the Galaxy one was pretty good. The, the Summer Max the, one was actually really good. Oh, yeah. The, all, all Summer Max games are great. I think uh, yeah. Back to the Future one was pretty good. Yep. Uh, the Borderlands one was actually really good. I think they were planning a Day of the Tentacle one as well, weren't they? Bringing back all. Great. Yeah. But if LucasArts is back under the Disney uh, well, banner, no. it's Lucasfilm Games now. Oh, right. They've revived Lucasfilm What's Games, that? not LucasArts. 
Plus, I think, in my understanding of it, is that things like Dead Tentacle and Maniac Mansion and stuff like that, they're owned by Double Fine now. Oh, yeah. A lot yeah. of the developers. Tim, what's yeah. Yeah. Tim, Tim Schafer. That way, so. yeah, we need a new Zack McCracken game. Yeah. Well, apparently Disney are hiring quite a lot of people for Lucasfilm games rather than LucasArts, yeah. mm. as it was. So that'd be quite interesting to see what happens. If we get another Indiana Jones Tomb Raider knockoff game, I will be very happy. Because there's been at least two of them and they're great. The old Indiana Jones point-and-click adventures were amazing. Mm. Fate of Atlantis was yes. a great game. Anyway, Lee, what have you been up to this week? Uh, the main thing I've been up to is uh, MCM Comic Con. Surprising, I saw you there, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw a video, apparently, yeah. that you were at. Uh, is that on the Geeky Premier YouTube channel, was it? That's, I yeah, think so it's so available now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, I thought I saw it on the uh, Jaws 19 channel. <laughs> Jaws 19 did help out with the video. Actually. Yes. We had the amazing, as always, tap challenge. Mm-hmm. Which... I think you... Excelled yourself. Yeah, it's some pretty extraordinary crap. Yeah. It still doesn't beat guys' random broken McDonald's toys in a carrier bag. No, <laughs> that's still the pinnacle. Or, or, or cat with challenge. fish stuck to face. Cat with fish stuck to face was great. That's the thing with the tat challenges. You never know what's going to come up, and it's getting harder and harder at these <laughs> comic cons. The thing is, you know, I mentioned about the little eight-bit key rings that I found. That yeah, I said they were the same price. They were cheaper, yeah. and they were a lot better quality, and that was. That was what made it worse. <laughs> I think Graham is enjoying his trick keyring yeah. <laughs> of not any use. But anyway, yeah, it was good fun. We met Charles Martinet, who is the voice of Super Mario. Does he does he genuinely talk like that the whole time? Is that his actual voice? When he walked into the room, he was like, Hello, it's me, Mario. Amazing. <laughs> well, no, he went, It's me, Mario, or Luigi. And then oh, yeah, he did, yeah. it's Mario. Yeah, it's Mario, Luigi, Waluigi. Wario, Baby Mario, and Baby Luigi. Is he Peach? No. No. Let's go. I thought he might do Bowser, because he was also a dragon in Skyrim as well. He was a dragon in Skyrim. Which just makes me think one of the dragons in Skyrim goes, (laughs) Yo! I've looked it up, and sadly that is not the case. (laughs) I think somebody should read up that. There's a Skyrim mod out there where you could turn it. There was the Macho Man Randy Savage Skyrim mod that went Mm -hmm. viral for quite a while. And the Thomas the Tank Engine one as well. Which is basically the same thing as the yeah. Randy Savage one, but it's a train. <laughs> <laughs> but there's quite a few other good guests. Asa Butterfield was there, Tom Hopper, and a couple of the other guys from the Umbrella Academy, Felicia Day, mm-hmm. who didn't really get a chance to speak to because she was no. mobbed. There was a moment on the Sunday where it looked like I might be able to get in there, but I think it was just they were winding the queue down because she was about to leave. So, See, when Lee said get in there, I, my no, mind was totally elsewhere. I think he was hoping, probably. <laughs> But yeah, it was good fun. Um, quite a lot of stuff that was on there. They've got a new gaming zone that they've set up for the first yeah, time. It's a little bit disappointing because it's mostly just retro stuff. Yeah. Here, here are all the Fortnite machines. <laughs> you can't play Fortnite at home for free or anything. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing with MCM March Birmingham because it's we're the first stop on the MCM tour for the mm. year. So you, you learn about stuff they're trying for the first time. Yeah. And uh, they have made a big announcement earlier today. Yes. I spent most of the day doing. Yes. Um, and initially I had no idea who it was. And then I looked it up, Google said he was in um, Once Upon a Time. And I was like, why are they building up hype for this guy? And I was like, oh, he's, he's Bucky. And he's like, why didn't Google put that as his big role? Well, he was, he was in something else, wasn't he? He was in another couple of indie movies, I think. This is like, he's just an indie movie, indie movie. Marvel, indie yeah. movie. He's in Itania. That was it, yeah. 
Why are they not promoting that? Sebastian <laughs> Sam from Itonia. They could have done. Like, that would be better. Yes. Keith did an amazing... Was it you? Yeah, it was you, didn't you? You did an amazing pound shop cosplay. Of the window. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah, I was going to say, what, Tonya Hart? <laughs> <laughs> Where was I that week? <laughs> well, you missed out. That, that was pretty... I mean, it's amazing what you could do with some Charlie Dimmock ground uh, covering and stuff. It's, uh, we need to bring that back. I've missed pound shop cosplay. I've been in pound shop recently. It's terrible. It's yeah, it kind of like... stuff's not so good. I don't feel like it's a reason to go to a pound shop to be honest with you, Alan. <laughs> is Charlie Dimmock still have a range of goods, as is Tommy Wolf? I don't think so. Didn't think that uh, sentence through before he said it. Look what's on the TV. Shazam. It's <laughs> had really, really good reviews. It's, had, it's at 100% Shazam. on Rotten Tomatoes in a minute. Everything's at 100% on to- Rotten Tomatoes when it first gets announced, unless there's a woman in it and it gets voted zero. Sorry, what so, film are you seeing which has got a one-star review from The Guardian? Dumber. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very true about Tomatoes. It's like, oh, oh, it's a male superhero film, let's give it 100%. There's a female superhero film, let's give it 0%. Rotten Tomatoes is a load of faff. It's stupid and it's full of sexists. Sorry it's... if you listen, you use Rotten Tomatoes, but you're a sexist. It's also very highly rated on Metacritic. I tell you what, though, if, you, if you're interested in, in good film uh, commentary and reviews, you should listen to the rest of the Geeky Pummy Show, because we, we do know a thing or two about films. We are the premier film good. podcast in Birmingham, yeah. We may not always agree, but at least from our disagreements, you'll be able to judge whether it's the film for you. Birmingham's major film podcast, other mm. shows are just radio shows. I think we bring a certain expertise to our <laughs> chat. Yes, we're all experts here. <laughs> shall we go on with the show? Well, haven't we asked boss, our, our leader in chief, our, our C, C and C, our what overlord. you would you would do this week? I feel, I feel like he's just going to recycle what Lee said. Like he'll, he'll, he'll go. go uh, I can't remember. You know, like when someone tells you a story and then somebody else kind of repeats it to you, and it's not as good the second time. Like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Ryan, so, Ryan's going. Oh, well, I was in New Steep Station, plugging, <laughs> unplugging various electrical cables to see which one would stop the lift. <laughs> I actually had a bit of a combination of all your stories because I was on a very sweaty train. He got stuck in a lift with Mario, a sideways walker, while buying games on eBay. <laughs> Close, but no. Okay. I was at MCM Comic Con. I got the train. I was shoved into the corner behind somebody's six-foot wings, as I mentioned earlier. We An had angel, we had many many slow walkers at MCM Comic Con and people yeah. dawdling and cutting across lines. It's not and... acceptable. Although yeah. I will admit that I did some sideways walking. Oh, <laughs> what is going on? We, we can't be friends anymore. There was a lot of stop and pivoting going on with people approaching <laughs> stalls and people just using their backpacks to block people out from stalls like the game stalls you couldn't get yeah. into the game stalls there's people like waving their backpacks to block people out of the way I got hit by a backpack at New Street the other day again at New Street I somebody scanned their card through it and I scanned mine through at the same time we both went through the, the gate and he went I think it was my card and I turned and went so and he whacked his bag into me naturally he got some form of verbal abuse shouted at him for the result of that but it's like it's people who use backwhack Backwhack. Backwhack. Well, it's quite a good word. Backwhack. Backpacking as weapons. Yeah, I'd agree. That is, it's an unnecessary form of attack. Yeah. Again, a backpack at a gig is an unnecessary thing to bring. Like, that's what cloakroom is for. Pay your pound, put it in the back. I bought my backpack to a gig, and it's like, that's great. Did you pay two ticket prices? Because you should have, because you bought a Glastonbury (laughs) kit with you. This is a whole thing. Backpacks on buses. 
and sitting down on the seat with the backpack still on your back what is that about? <laughs> <laughs> especially if it's a backpack that looks like you've gone flipping hiking through the Himalayas as well but guys guys, I mean I've probably not mentioned this and I should have used it in my white rubbish before but the whole idea of people going to gigs now I like to go to a gig but it's expensive costs a lot of money so you've got the people who go with the backpacks mm-hmm. who look like they're going camping and then you've got people who go who stand there chatting yeah, for the entire mm. gig, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's like, why, why are you doing this? Why are you at a gig that you paid sixty, seventy quid to sit, and all you, you've, all what you've come to do is have a chat? People who go to the cinema to catch up with friends as well. Oh yeah, that's just bad. Yeah. That's just mm. that's just Oof. rudeness. Rudeness. No. On the subject of gigs, distracting from you, right? We did think we we said we'd briefly mention this: uh, the atrocity of the Glastonbury Festival twenty nineteen. What? went wrong so if you don't know the headliners are i'll go i'll start with what's good the cure sunday night headliner okay. friday night stormzy okay not so familiar with stormzy myself not my but cup of tea, I'm but i've been told yeah. is worthy to headlining mm. saturday yeah. night is where we hit the, a the greatest issue. night of Glastonbury, yeah, the know, biggest of night of the event. Huge bands have played like that thing like metallica radiohead you know, even adele amongst, yeah Beyonce, you know, Beyonce did it on Sunday. Anyway, what have we got this year? What have they thought, you know, the band that everybody wants this year? The Killers. Who are also headlining Woodstock Keith, Keith's 50. not saying anything here, but Keith, I know you like that band, but they're not worthy of headlining that festival now, are they? It, it's, it's the same as Maroon 5 doing the Super Bowl, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, honestly, I, if I went to Glastonbury and the Killers were headlining on a night, I wouldn't particularly complain. No. You know it's just going to be <coughs> five plays of Mr. Brightside mm. and that'll be it. I, I have a feeling that that's probably what it is. It's because Mr. Brightside is like such a huge song that they've probably just headlined them for that reason. I mean, you've got Kylie. I'd say Kylie is more worthy of the headliner yeah. spot oh, actually, than wait, the Janet killers. Jackson's playing. What? Nonsense. How many, how many, deca- how, how many decades of success has Kylie yeah, had? Yeah, it's fair, mm. Ryan. You've got that, that nipped in the bud. 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Decades singles. of success does not relate to actually decent All right, Janet Jackson. Deserves it. Legend. Mm-hmm. Would you say Janet Jackson or Kylie are less worthy than the Killers? I'd say they're possibly <laughs> on a similar part. Right. Which is like the killers, I'm on board with the killers. Yeah. Well, I mean, but still, right, we'll drop down to the next level. The killers level. and the cure, it's like, what have they done? Have they been poaching the old people's homes? Yeah. Right. I shall <laughs> drop down to the next list and try to see if any of these are more words than the killers. George Ezra? No. No. Liam Gallagher? Yeah. I mean, like, not yeah. very good solo, but yeah. a, le- a legend in his own if right. It, if it was Oasis reforming and Noel Gallagher comes out to play with him, I that, mean, that yeah, would be the about 40 minutes of Liam Gallagher's and the rest yeah. of Oasis. Yes. Deserted. Miley Cyrus? No. Ugh. I know, she's a, she's a big fan. Uh, Tame Impala? No. No, but good. The Chemical Brothers. They're on to the third line down now. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Vampire Weekend? Yeah, even, yeah I've, I've spoken to the law about this. Like, Yes, they're on their fourth album now. They're a band who deserve a chance like that. Yes. Um, Miss Lauren Hill? 
I mean, she won't, she yeah. won't turn up, so <laughs> like they're, they're putting a lot of money. I hope they've got someone lined up, because she ain't coming. She'll, she'll turn up on Monday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you've you got a risk coming there. Like, I hope they put on the Friday. She might show up Sunday night. Janelle Monet. Good, but not headliner. Uh, Christine and the Queens, who have not heard. I don't know what that is. Oh, Hosier. Who? Hosier. No. Well, I mean, we just did... Two Dawson no. do- Club, and we'll just finish off the last line for a Birmingham classic, George Smith. I mean, sorry, the Wu-Tang Clan are on the fifth line I down. Know, yeah. <laughs> the Wu-Tang Clan are lower down. I mean, like, Kamasi Washington is on there, and he's oh, an no. incredible live artist, and bringing back jazz music, like Kirk said on the review. Yeah. Yeah. How is that not a headline set? That's incredible. Mm. I mean, further down, all right, not Mike of T, Sheryl Crow, Bastille... They're, they're quite big bands at the minute. Well, Cheryl Crow's not quite as big Are as you sure usual. this is Glastonbury and not the lineup for the next few shows of Jules Holland's uh, <laughs> I mean, music it night? It feels like it. Like, so, like, it feels like a beat festival. On it. I mean, get me on. I'm not, I'm a, I love The Cure. They're one of my favourite bands in the end. one of my all-time favourite bands. But even I don't think they are a good headline app. Like, I think they're a great band live, but I don't think like, right. if you were there like, oh, The Cure are playing tonight. I, I think there is a worse travesty than this, though. Which is... Woodstock 50. 50 years is one of the most legendary music yeah, yeah. events of all time. So who's headlining Woodstock 50? Oh, is it the Killers by any chance? It's the Killers! Oh, they're back! <laughs> and then you've got Dead & Company, Jay-Z, Miley Cyrus, Chance the Rapper, Imagine Dragons and Santana. To me, the only person who lives up to the original Woodstock 50 <laughs> feeling Santana. is that Santana! <laughs> Oh god, that's appalling. Do you know what? I love the fact the killers are headlining Glastonbury. Today I received an email from chauffeur film first trying to sell me tickets for three pounds for the guitarist and the killers live in Birmingham. It's, it's like Band Aid '95 or something, isn't it? <laughs> it's like the killers have blatantly dropped their prices so much that they can headline this stuff for dirt cheap. I mean, like I. I just don't understand the mindset behind it. I just don't think they've got the money they can't afford the bands anymore. I mean... Mm. I didn't even know Glastonbury was on this year. Yeah. Well, do you know what I mean? Like, well, it, do, it, do you think the big bands are going there? This is the problem. It's like people like Radiohead. They're probably never going to tour again. Is this, is this where we're coming to? Is the big bands stopping up, dropping away now? I don't think they can afford them anymore. I think that... Um, well, if you look at Fleetwood Mac, they're just doing arenas everywhere. And it's full of arenas that allow. Well, if you bear in mind, like a lot of bands tour these days, and the ticket prices are so high because obviously, you know, the way that we buy music and stuff has changed. So obviously, yeah. the gig prices are more expensive. So naturally, the acts are more expensive. I heard they asked the Arctic Monkeys to play, and they said no. And the Strokes apparently were in line to play at one point. Now, if they can't even afford the Strokes, I mean, what is going on with Glastonbury? Because I feel like the Strokes would have been a good headliner there. Well, this is the thing they had a year off, and it's a case of. What they'd done with that year off, because that's when you'd be booking big bands in advance for two years. It's a mean, guaranteed gig. I mean, like, if you compare it to the two years they've had off, like, the previous headliners were Foo Fighters, Radiohead, and I hate him, Ed, but Ed Sheeran is still a huge artist that would attract that kind of crowd. Mm. That's, yeah, if you went for that weekend, that's a good set of bands yeah. to go and see. You know, that's a, that's a prime lineup. But, like, looking at the three headlines, I mean, I know nothing about Stormzy. I've been told he's good, but again, I know nothing. But again, I'm quite happy for a new he's artist. He's one for the youths. I think. Yeah. yeah, I feel I feel I'm happy for a new artist yeah. to have that opportunity. But you know, the Cure, a classic band. Well, they they've got the legend slot on the Sunday, haven't they? That's mm. what they call it now. It's the Sunday night is 
the legend slot. But as you know, I just feel like killers were kind of just like, oh, do you know what? We haven't had it for them for a while. We'll do it for free. I feel like, they, like it's like news. Like they'll just come back. You know, just give just give them a couple of drinks and they'll do it for free. That's that's how it feels. <laughs> I I Muse are amazing live, so I wouldn't mind seeing Muse on a Saturday live at Glastonbury because they always put in an amazing performance. The Killers is just gonna be. I feel like I feel like it's gonna be interesting when the ticket resales go up in April. The a lot of people because you put a fifty pound deposit down for the ticket. I think a lot of people are just gonna write that off and be like, Do you know what, this ain't the year for me. And I actually genuinely think this is the year that Glastonbury. It's gonna it's gonna really affect them and going forward. I think the interest is gonna die after this in Glastonbury, and they killed it for themselves by booking the killers. Sorry, Keith. No offence, but they're not—they're not a big pull anymore. I, I personally don't think it makes any difference who they book at Glastonbury. People are going to book tickets because they just—they go for the Glastonbury experience. And mm-hmm. if you see something good, great. There's a chance you might be on the TV because the BBC cover it wall to wall. There's plenty of other stages. It's eight miles across for you to walk sideways through. I mean, it's Lauren um, Laverne's only paying gig for the year. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think anybody goes to Glastonbury for the bands anymore. I, mean, I, think, I, think, gonna... I think people just go for the Glastonbury experience, and that's isn't it. Lauren Laverne and Mark Radcliffe. Yeah, for I was the only just see Mark Radcliffe get hammered on TV. That's what it's, that's what it's for these days. Mark and Lauren instead of Mark and Lard. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to Lard? They both have their own six music shows. Yeah, Do they? Six music. Yeah. I used to love Mark and Lard in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. They were great. Well, that's fun. <laughs> that's really mm-hmm. Anywhere around, how's your week? <laughs> <laughs> it's alright, actually. Cool. Cool story, bro. Jordan Peele's second feature film is out in cinemas at present. It is called Us. Keith and Guy, you've seen it. I'm handing over to you both. I went first with Captain Marvel, so it's your turn to go first this time. Uh, the cinema experience for me was quite noisy in the cinema. Uh, there was a lot of people, a lot of people talking. Seat was fairly comfortable. Uh... I had a bottle of juicy water with me. Um, I didn't go to the toilet during the film. Like I say, uh, in terms of cinema experience, I would have liked it to be quieter, I think, for this film. How do you come back from, from a review as good as that? My cinema experience was much better. I went to my local independent cinema. Plug, it plug. wasn't particularly busy. It was late on a Saturday night. Uh, although it was in their creepy screen, which is a screen right at the back, down a dark corridor which is quite cool added to it um personally i I found the film to be highly entertaining uh i wouldn't personally say it's been sold into as the film that it is because i didn't think it was particularly a horror film in the traditional sense which has been made out from the first trailer i was expecting something far weirder and disturbing than i actually got Mm. in the screening it was actually not too dissimilar to a lot of kind of 80s and early 90s films, um, which, strangely enough, are referenced or even visible in the background of scenes, just peppered throughout. So I think Jordan Peele's actually kind of uh, pinned his colours to the mast here and actually kind of telegraphed a lot of what influenced him on, on this particular film. So I, I didn't come out of it scared or shocked. I thought it was quite an interesting film. You know, well, it wasn't. It wasn't scary. Um, I think in the way the trailer's good though, because it doesn't reveal some midway film twists. Oh yeah, so some pertinent some, details aren't aren't given away. So there's some stuff in there which I didn't see come. But I think when you get to 
the twist. And there's not a twist, so to speak, but when there's when there's midway point of the film, I think you probably know what I'm on about because we're yeah. obviously trying to avoid spoilers here for Lee and Ryan. Yes, yeah, I, I would like to see this film, so I, <laughs> they are on distinct, distinct orders to not have any spoilers. I think I think when you get to that midway point, the uh, I feel like unlike Get Out, the message is he's trying to convey this film become very apparent very quickly. It doesn't hide like the the thought rationale behind the mm. film. It's quite you quite easily start thinking, yeah, that's what that represents, that's what rap represents. Yeah. Um I did enjoy it. However, for me the I didn't enjoy it as much as Get Out. I didn't find it that original because to be honest with you, it was very much a much tamer version of Michael Haneke's Funny Games which yeah. to me is one of the hardest films I've ever watched because it's just sheerly brutal, unacceptable, atrocious, but somewhat brilliant with the way you can't help but feel impressed by the captors and what they're doing. Like, drawn in by their charisma and you feel sick by the end of it the fact you were totally, totally on board with them. Um, so I felt like definitely for me the film was a tame honey game. Uh, funny honey games. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole different film. Um, I just felt like he'd obviously. It's not ruining the film by saying it's like funny games because the, it does take a completely different path, but like the slight home invasion element, to me, it was just that film being done tamer. I mean, Get Out was a massive, massive success. I mean, it grossed $255 million on a very small budget and us is on to I think at least equaling or even going surpass this again on quite a small budget. I mean, is this like the new wave of indie horror? I mean we've had stuff like Paranormal. It kicked off by stuff like um Blair Witch Project. Is this like the next evolution of this? I think, kind I of think where Jordan Peele's positioning himself is is not with the kind of Bloomhouse type stuff and, and, and all of that kind of like the conjurings and the nuns or whatever it is. This is kind of a little bit more in the kind of, I would want to say kind of John Carpenter-esque uh, area okay. where it's slightly off-kilter morality tales with 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 slightly um, kind of weird and and... And, and stuff overtones because before they they trailered something like they trailered um, Pet Cemetery the remake, mm-hmm. which is a much more straight laced kind of horror type flick. And I think what Jordan Peele's doing is is and it's just quite interesting that he's going on to become well, a producer of the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone, yeah. Because these these I still I think Get Out and very much so Us is more along that kind of line of a kind of weird tale. Well, his star is ascendant at the minute, isn't it? I mean, it's come from Key and Peele, which at the end of the day was a sketch show. It was a great sketch show, Mm. but he's completely subverted his entire career now to be like this well-known director after just two films. Well, 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 I think what's making him... uh, People sit up and notice him is... uh, Great, he's writing some interesting stories, and I kind of like this the fact that it's a mainstream version of some of the kind of like trashy video... Yeah. Uh, films that I watched in the kind of eighties and nineties, but also as a visual stylist, he's done a lot of things, interesting things in this film in terms of his use of color, in terms of his use of symbolism, in terms of his use of framing. Um, there's things in there that when you kind of watch it, I think it, I think it probably would benefit from a second watch uh, because certain numbers 
are kind of highlighted throughout the film, and if and it, and it's always there, it's ever present. The the shape of these numbers and, and the symbolism of it. So I think as a visual stylist, he's he's doing some interesting stuff, and I think that's what makes these films entertaining. Is that there is some kind of message in there. Um, this particular one of their that he's putting across how um, that the there's a there's a, a through thread of, about the hands across America that happened. Uh, I think during the Reagan administration, which is a big thing about trying to um, uh, join the highlight, uh, yeah. homelessness and highlight yeah. the, the stuff that was going on, and the fact that it was this big grand dream but didn't actually come off the way they intended it. And the film ends with a, a direct kind of relation to that happening now, but in a different way. And it's it's quite a powerful statement of how. These I can't. It's really hard not to kind of give anything away. It's really, it's really tricky, but it's 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 intelligent and it's it's well put together. It's it is an enjoyable experience. Oh, I think for me, not as good as Get Out. Not quite the revelation and the the surprise that Get Out was. You know, that literally came from nowhere. I feel like once you've seen that, you're kind of expecting Jordan Peele to do another gal, you know, you expect him to make these sort of films, now, so that kind of expectation has gone, and I feel like with Get Out, it was, it was really different, there wasn't anything, it was really unusual, and I can't think of anything it's like, but with, with, with Us, I really enjoyed it, well, I'd probably watch it again, but it really does play too much on horror films, some horror films that we, yeah. know, we know, and some things, that, some too much familiarity that doesn't, Make it as a unique experience as Get Out. So Get Out was Daniel Kaluuya's big film, mm. and it, it projected him quite far into the Hollywood. How's Lupita Nyong'o been in us? The voice. <laughs> she's she's really good in it. Um, Winston it's... Duke is the standout. I thought it was great. <laughs> but for me, Winston Duke was Jordan Peele's analog. Yeah. In, in the film, there was very much what he was doing was literally, yeah. If, if Jordan Peele had cast himself, um, but he was great. I mean, the, the whole cast really carried well. Even the young actors really do a great job because they're having to play dual roles throughout the film, and I think they do an incredible job of making sure that there is distinct dif- differences between each each kind of character, each each persona. Okay, so to sum up, worth a watch. It's worth a watch, but if you really, if if you want the nightmare experience that this isn't going to give you, go watch Funny Games instead. And don't, and I feel, I'm sorry if it terrifies you. <laughs> uh, I'd I'd highly recommend it. All I would say is don't expect an out and out horror movie. Is it more of a thriller than a horror? It's more of a kind of psychological thriller mm-hmm. rather than okay. a horror film. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so it's been 20 years since one of the greatest directors of the modern age has passed away, Mr. Stanley Kubrick, who directed 13 full feature films and three short movies. And we thought we'd pick out some of his more well known films. Okay, we don't know anything about the earliest <laughs> stuff, cause we, but we are still the best film podcast in Birmingham, <laughs> but we just don't know anything about his well, early stuff. Well, I picked... Shall we go for the which films we picked out each first? And Guy, what films did you pick? Uh, I've got I've got to do Full Metal Jacket, uh, Barry Lyndon, and Eyes Wide Shut. Lee? Uh, I picked The Shining. This is the only thing I can remember really well. <laughs> the <laughs> Shining. And Keith? 
Uh, I've got Doctor Strange Love and Lolita. So I actually picked Spartacus and 2001 A Space Odyssey, which are the only two films not done in his customary Academy widescreen format. Interestingly. Oh, so Spartacus was Panavision and I think two, um, 2001 was Cine- Cinemascope. So best start with Spartacus then. Yeah. Never so, seen it. So it's not really a Kubrick movie. He was bought on right, a week. We passed it then. <laughs> well, he was bought on a week after filming, after the original director got sacked by executive producer and star Kirk Douglas. So some preliminary shooting had already been done, and then Kubrick was bought in to direct it. But you do see glimpses of his very, very familiar style, which is the wide cut. I think that's what Kubrick's known for more than anything else. Is that. Mm massive sweeping vision that he always mm. has in his film and you see it quite a lot in the battle sequence where you see the Roman army getting into position which feels like it was about six hours long which is only about ten minutes out of the three hours and twenty minutes of film I mean I think now that you look at his grand body of work it's only appropriate there's a sand and sword, uh, sandals and swords epic yeah. involved with that but I still I can't see this as being his definitive body of work like we didn't have a mention the earlier stuff like some of the films like Paths of Glory and The Killing I've never bothered with that stuff because it's not to me this isn't signature Kubrick it's not something well this is before he developed his style he was known mm. as a photographer before he was a director and cinematographer so he started off very early in his career with photography and that's where he learnt his eyes for the shot I mean there's a great shot in the Spartacus where he's showing the gladiators training riding on horseback cutting into melons I think it was <laughs> but it's it's a great way to show not tell and that is what I think Kubrick does more than very well better than a lot of other directors he was the master of showing rather than having to have dialogue to go with it okay. it's mostly probably because he was showing abuse at his actors while yeah. he was yes I think that must have been a really curious relationship for him at that age because Kurt Douglas brings him on. Mm-hmm. Kurt Douglas is the star. Kurt Douglas is the producer. So how can you push your star at the end of the day when he's your boss at the same time? Yeah, Strangely as well, it was a film that was released in a different cut to what he originally planned to release. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the one that he's had least control over, I think, it's, which is a well-known Kubrick movie. And, um, but... Some of the actors you have in this film are amazing, if you think about it. Got Kurt Douglas, got Laurence Olivier, uh, Gene Simmons, Charles Lautry. Sorry, Gene Simmons? Yeah. As in Kiss is Gene Simmons? No, as in Gene G-J-E-A. Oh, okay, cool, carry on. Peter Ustinoff, who is a scene studio in every single scene that he's in. And some really big names of the day. And I think it has a sword and sample. Sandals epic suited his cinema style. I feel like none of those people though you'd commonly associate with his films though. Like I'll get back to that later on mm. in another point, but I feel like they're people who I don't feel they're like you just wouldn't think of a Kubrick film, think of those people being in one of his films. No. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a very worthy entry into his directorial career, but as I said it's it's the least Kubrick of the Kubrick movies that I've seen. I feel, I feel like I'm, to this day I'm always going to shun it and it doesn't feel like one of his films. I always see him as style, I feel that this, but this is not. I think the runtime frightens a lot of people. It is mm. three hours mm. plus of things to watch. And the main battle sequence, which is usually the pinnacle of any of those movies, is two hours in. So you've still got an hour's worth of story mm. afterwards, which I think a lot of people frightened of, frightened of it. Mm. But he is known for having long runtimes in his movies. and I think it's true, yeah. 
Look, Keith, I'm going to flip over to you now for his next two films. Well, first up is going to be um, Lolita, which I think a lot of people probably won't have seen. Hmm. I don't think I've um, seen it. I've, I've seen the majority of it, so I, I can help you a bit here. I think the Jeremy Irons version is the one that people more think of nowadays. Which is, than which is a shame, version. because, I mean, obviously it's based on the novel. But it's quite interesting because it's got um, James Mason yeah. uh, as the lead, but it's also kind of uh, where Kubrick gets to meet Peter Sellers. Uh, and again, it's kind of a, it's a chance for him to work because I think what, what Kubrick ended up doing with a lot of his films is he worked with particular actors because he can he can see something in them that he can use to bring out uh, into his, his film. So obviously, th- this is Kubrick taking a bit of a more surreal take on cinema uh, than he had previously. And later, again, I think just came at a time when I think American audiences weren't quite uh, ready to have that kind of middle America sexual hang-up thing uh, examined and thrown up on, on the big screen. Uh, and I think still now the, the subject matter would be considered troubling well, and, and taboo. Well, Hollywood was still recovering from McCarthyism at this time, mm. so that was a big thing. I mean, one of the, the one thing I didn't mention with Spartacus was the screenwriter of Spartacus. It was the first film that people actually credited to him because he was one of the ten, which was McCarthyism against him. He was shunned by Hollywood, and Kubrick was one of the only few people to recognise him for this film. Yeah. I mean, another, somebody else, I mean, the, the guy's in it. But Shelley uh, Winters is in it as well, uh, and she's she's quite quite stunning in that that film as well but also it's another also another one of these things where certain things that Kubrick gets known for like it's a film set in America but was filmed in England Uh, so his sense of kind of filming things not where they originally set uh, is quite interesting because when you get to something like um, Full Metal Jacket that whole idea of that was done in London Docklands the Isle of Dogs replacing Vietnam and Mm. completely not using Hueys and using Wessex helicopters and stuff. So Kubrick just working with what he's got around him is quite interesting. But Lolita is quite—it is an interesting curiosity. I think it's the the film that, that most people who have come across Kubrick's work probably won't have seen. I feel like I feel like those are the first one people genuinely associate with his name, yeah. though. So when you say his name and you say like think about his body of work mm. like Ryan you talked about Spikes but I feel like Lolita is the point where people are like yep. he did direct Lolita I haven't seen it but that is the point people know like the controversial director Stanley yeah. Kubrick's I mean it kind of makes sense starts. when he kind of circles back round to that kind of psychosexual subject matter with Eyes Wide Shut you can see that obviously this sexual repression and people's society's inability to deal with with something as primal as, and I think it's well, something that's that Kubrick with Clockwork Orange as well. It runs yeah, and I think it's something that, that Kubrick's work is very interested in is the psych, psyche of what it is to be human, and the, I think why he, why he ended up translating The Shining in the way that he did mm-hmm. was to build on that idea of the the human subconscious, the drives and the desires that that people have that are often hidden away. Or not discussed, uh, and I think Kubrick has oh. got a bit of that in, in throughout his films. I mean, you can see it in, some, in things like Two Thousand and One, yeah. Full Metal it's, Jacket, The Shining, all that kind it's of. It's the whole id versus ego thing that you get yeah. quite a lot in psychology. It's like, do we repress our basis desires mm. to be more than 
what we are. Yeah, I think it kind of leads through to why he was developing something like AI. Mm. Because if you kind of watch the, the Spielberg thing... Well, even then, you get the that, sexual thing the, There's the whole thing of Jude like Lord's desire and what it is to be alive and all the kind of interesting things. So I think throughout his films, he always deals with these kind of tr- tricky subject matters. I think it's one mm. of his only films as well where he doesn't use classical music as a soundtrack. He does... Nelson Riddle's score, but it's yeah. got, it's the one the only of his like almost prominent era of films where it's it's a score and it's not classical music. It's actually been written for the film. Yeah, it still stands out. I feel like it's the first time in his films where like he yeah. maybe was relying on music as well to tell the story. Mm. I don't I don't know I'm Spartacus, but I imagine Spartacus. Well, Spartacus, 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 Spartacus is again it's all classical works and it was very bombastic epic yeah, music. Alec North scores pretty. Uh, impressive, yeah. quite good. But I mean, you. I mean, and the thing is, you go from Lolita. Obviously, he makes that relationship with Peter Sellers. So the next thing you get is Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, and it's his only real comedy. Would you say it's a comedy? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a comedy. black comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you've got lines like the "You can't fight here. This is the war," and they're yeah. definitely aiming for a comedy yeah. thing. Yeah. The whole scene with the tech the Texas cowboy riding yeah, exactly. the bomb as well. The funny yeah. thing about the Strange Love is I've I've seen it twice. The first time I absolutely hated it. The second time I absolutely loved it. And I don't know why that is, but how much time had passed between you seeing it the first time and the second a, time? A good few years, I think. I think it's Peter Sellis's dual roles in this throws a lot of yeah. people. Mm-hmm. If you don't really pay attention to the plot, it they mm. never really explain that flip flopping between his two roles. Yeah, I think it's it's very sharply satirical as well. I think the the comedy's not mm-hmm. out and out comedy in terms of, of, of what it is, and I think it's an interesting film as well, playing into that kind of paranoia uh, of yeah. the of the early sixties and the co- the, the uh, communist menace and all the rest of it, and McCarthyism mm-hmm. and, all, and all of that. But again, it's it's rife of, with symbolism and duality and all those kind of things, very, very Kubrickian tropes. So I've, n- I've always n- never put this film on. I've never decided to watch it. it. There's always been something about it that's never appealed to me about it. I don't feel... I don't know. I don't know how... It doesn't strike me as Kubrick as I know. Again, I've said this about Spartacus, but it didn't feel to... It doesn't... It feels... It still feels like he's not found his feet yet. And I don't know. It, does, it doesn't have the same feel of like Lolita, I guess. I agree. It's not his greatest work, but it has a lot of merit, and there is a lot of Kubrick in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's more of a Peter Sellers movie than mm. it is a yeah. Kubrick movie mm-hmm. in terms of the, Kubrick's influences in the visual styling of it, yeah, and mm-hmm. how it looks and how he plays and his, his sense of presenting things. I mean. That war room set has been yeah. duplicated in God oh, knows how many films since. Yeah, I mean, um, it's been parodied so many times. I mean, yeah. everybody knows Simpsons just takes all of Kubrick stuff yeah. and parodies at least once or twice. But yeah, I think it's the, it's the seller's influence in that one that possibly takes it a little bit away from the, yeah. the, the more traditional Kubrick movie. I think it was, was it after the seller's version of James Bond? I think... It's around the same time as yeah. uh, Casino Royale. Because it has that very similar kind of oh, yeah. farce feel to it. Where it is, even though this is like such a serious matter, it has a farce element it to it. It might be just after, because I think Casino Royale and Doctor No were out at the same, around the same time. That's mm. 63, so this is 64. 
four, I think. She'll check. You're gonna, you're gonna there's, a d- there's a DVD on the <laughs> side of that. <laughs> I'm going to look really bad now if I don't know. That it is 64. Yes. You're spot on. Oh, I, I, I literally just bought the DVD. <laughs> yeah. I haven't yeah. run a copy of Speed Race. So. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk about the Wachowskis the other day. Yeah, because it was Spartacus 1960, Lolita 62, Strange yeah. 64. And then we're back to my next movie, which is, some might say, the definitive Kubrick movie. Hmm. It has every single Kubrick beat and no, it has the wide angle shot, it has the classical music, it has very much of the show not tell style. There is few there's quite a few minutes where there is no dialogue in this film. Is it like seventeen minutes before anybody says a word in the film? From what I remember of two thousand and one, <coughs> just long panning shots of spaceships. Yeah. That go on forever. And it's one of the things that I hate about that movie. <laughs> it it comes across clunky in a modern style and I think that's because of the time he was shooting it Mm -hmm. it comes across as clunky now when we look back but at the time with what materials he had available Mm -hmm. I think it is a very very well shot film I mean that whole bit with the monkey throwing the bone up into the air and that turning into the spaceship I mean again that's a shot that's been parodied time after time again that that jump cut to something else with just a visual reference to take you across visually I find it a really great film yeah. it still holds up visually but I think to watch it I just find it a slog for the most part I I kind of like the ponderousness mm. of it because I think it's it, central to the theme of what the film's about yeah, that kind of slightly navel gazing yeah. like ooh what's well, it all mean yeah. I take it from a different point of view I take it from you've got the space race on at this time and space flight is not a fast thing. We have launch, and then everything after that is a lot of calculations, a lot of slow movements, a lot of slow turning, a lot of positioning. And I think that's what he's trying to get through is the feel of the film. It's it's not a case of you press a button and the spaceship will stop. It's deceleration. It's the whole, and he's trying to be truthful to the, the subject it, subject yeah. matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing about Leonard Rossiter turning up in the first twenty minutes is a bit of a shock because all you see imagine is Rigby from Rising Down. But it keeps on recurring actors. He cropped up in Barry Lyndon, yeah. so you know he they, he had a thing about actors. Yeah, but again, you got a mainly British cast here with quite a few Americans thrown in, but. It's it's such a great film to watch, and it's a great story that Arthur C. Clarke wrote in the first place, and he was very heavily involved in the screenplay, and you can tell he's helped adapt this to this film. See, like you've said about it being it slowly, and like there's mm. a lot of build up to, you know, it doesn't really matter much. I find it in I find it one of the scariest films ever made. Yeah, I actually, genuinely think it's terrifying. The first time you see those monoliths on the moon and the music that's oh, back that, in that, I was going to say horrifying. The music, the chorus work is just it's, uncomfortable all the yeah. way through because you have beautiful pieces of music. You have the Blue Danube, you have Alpha mm. Space, so it's, uh, and then you have this. Yeah, it's, it's the slow building of voices and then high pitched and low pitched. It's hor- it's, the, it's the sound, the sound of that film yeah. is fantastic. But see, the slow build up to me, it's I think it's it's a horror film at heart because you know, the, is it Howl the thing on the spaceship? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Howl is now like the ultimate yeah. evil AI. Everybody models, even mm. though Howl isn't actually an evil AI in the thing, it's yeah. just the cold logic. Of how he comes to decisions. This is, this is the thing, like the Hal sequences are some of my favourite parts of that film. 
You're staring at a red dot, basically. Yeah. All of it's in the voice work. And it, yeah, that voice work is just, like I said, it's the cold logic of it. It's so monotone and it's so yeah. unfeeling while but doing all this stuff that... I think until the very end of how mm-hmm. It's not spoilers because everybody should have seen yeah. this film. Right now. But when he starts taking the memory banks out, you can start to feel that lump of fear rising mm-hmm. in Hal's voice of, mm-hmm. this is where I, as things pass away now because he's an AI it's a living Mm. creature it's just not a breathing creature but it is a horror film it builds up slowly like any horror film that it delivers Mm -hmm. the thrills midway through and then delivers you a smack bang of a confusion of an ending where you Mm -hmm. completely takes your mind to another place and it really well and truly does take your mind to another place I I think that's the worst part of the film imagine being alone for so long in a quite blatantly faked reality that is, that what you, is that what it is? I mean, like, I still this day never fully understand what happens. Well, if, you, you if you've ever read the book, it's basically like the aliens don't know what to do with the flooring because they don't, because they've taken it from his memory and just constructed what he sees. They don't really take it out of the floor. That's why you have these lit floor panels because it's kind of like they just filled the space with something. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, you know, a film where Kubrick's finally found his feet, he's doing what he wants to do. And it's a, it's really is the first film where like he launched, he did an iconic shot yeah. seeing you know, the baby in in the egg in the moon mm. or whatever. It, it's an iconic shot of cinema, and like that is something that will go throughout the rest of his films. Like you know, you'll there'll be an iconic shot now, yeah, in each of his films, which will stick in the memory mm. your memory. But- it's hugely influential. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the impact that film has ripples back through all of the kind of sci-fi films that came after it. You know, Star Trek, the motion picture, I think Alien. Even Star Hope, Wars yeah, takes a little bit from it. They, they all, all owe it a huge amount of um, debt. Space 1999 TV shows. I, mean, I don't think we'd have films like Event Horizon without 2001. Clockwork Orange, and so that yep. the reason we're doing this feature is obviously because there's the reissue of Clockwork Orange coming out. Yes, um, I feel like this was my first sort of encounter with a Kubrick work. This was the one I wanted to see. This is the one I sort of what of his I watched first, which led me to rediscover his whole work. Um, it it it's a it's an incredible film, mm-hmm. but it loses its way after the ultraviolence stops. Mm-hmm. But again, the iconic shot, the iconic open, the close-up of Malcolm McDowell's evil face into the backing into the milk bar, you know, just yeah. stunning, you know, absolutely mm. incredible. I, I disagree with you that it loses its way. The theme that runs through every Kubrick movie is there is no heroes. Mm. Even, like, the greatest, the most noble of people won't usually have the nicest of endings. And he flips that on the head with an anti-hero. I mean, the Droogs are not nice people at all. This is very nasty characters. I don't know, Ryan. I feel like a bunch of nice guys, to be honest with you. I feel like I could be a good part of that group. But he, he takes like the opposite path of... You begin to like Malcolm McDowell's character in this. You begin to sympathise. Oh, he's very charismatic. Yeah, he's yeah. great. Like, I thought... I, you know, like... Back in the day, the violence controversial. I can see why he got banned and stuff like that. But, you know, when he's... When he's you know, bashing the woman in with the giant, the giant phallus... Comic gold and Kubrick made that scene funny. Like well, you with laugh the, at with the sped sped up footage of him chasing somebody around. With yeah, him. and like yeah. just like the wax, the everything about it. It's silly, but it's funny. It, it's it's horrifying, mm. but it's funny. He, like the rape scene 
it's horrifying, but he's added a weird co- dark comedy to it, which yeah, is I, like I it's was... unsettling, but like <sighs> gently yeah, amusing. I, I agree with this. It's basically it's really unsettling, but it's also really compelling at the same time. Like you just can't you. It's hugely entertaining, but you feel like you shouldn't be entertained by it. And I think it's the color involved. It was like a silly, <laughs> yeah. silly rainbow technical I, yeah. scene. This is the genesis of stuff like Black Mirror to me. This is that kind of what if something but bad. <laughs> it's, it's that's where I get the feeling from. It's like what if you have a street gang with no morals? See, for me, the not the problem I've got with Clockwork Orange is that I I grew up where it was uh, under the self-imposed ban. So in the UK, unless you saw it when it was first released, you didn't see it. So for me, the film had a notoriety for many many years before the imagery, the word. The the whole mm. sense of what that film was, I knew about, but I'd never seen the film. And I must admit, the first time I saw it, I didn't like it. Okay. Because it didn't live up to the expectation that the symbolism... Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, I get and that. I was kind of like, this is rubbish. Mm-hmm. And but it goes, I've gone back to it. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I can see now what's happening in there. And, I'm, and there are fantastic sequences amongst there and and, and the, the thing that draws me back to it that makes it really interesting for me is that conditioning or the attempted conditioning of, of Malcolm McDowell's character this idea that we can control you it's another one of these films where Kubrick is, is, is directly think, looking at desire and, and, and the things that people want to do violence is a very primal thing and, and 2001 it's pri- all that beginning sequence is very primal and I do quite like the idea of this kind of like Contro- the idea of trying to control something that's just uncontrollable. See, my scene that I think is probably the most pivotal scene in the movie, which people seem to forget about, is where the truant officer comes over. Oh, he punches him in the nuts. Yeah, and I think that is like one of the most pivotal scenes in the movie that gets forgetting around because you have such iconic yeah. scenes with like the eye makeup, the milk bar, stuff like that. But this is the f- this is the scene where it shows you the vulnerability mm-hmm. of his character. I, I think again from a stylish perspective, the, the the way the the silliness of how it's filmed with the silly versions of the classical music being played and, mm-hmm. and like almost the fisheye lens and the record store and things like silly. The way Kubrick has filmed it's very silly, but in terms of the way he made Britain look, does look futuristic, scary, yeah. desolate, and like any like and people have imitated that style. So like I'm passing my mind back to High Rise from Ben Wheatley from 2016, and like he very much imitates the style of like the clockwork or desolate Britain. And like I feel like if perhaps it screws this, we're going to be living in the clockwork orange version mm-hmm. of like apocalyptic looking Britain. Uh, and I that's th- how it will look. It'll look like Coventry. It, it felt like Thatcher's Britain. 15, 20 years before it actually occurred. Mm-hmm. That grim, depressing darkness, which a lot of people felt, especially in the north of Britain. And I think that's where it resonates from rather than... Yeah. But there are definitely bits of that where it, it feels like that sort of run-down sort of Britain, but there's other bar- parts of it that just look like a little bit alien almost. Yeah. And I think that kind of... That adds to that sort of futuristic... I, I mean, I can imagine it. somebody opening a milk bar in Shoreditch tomorrow, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. There probably already is one. There's probably already five. You also do get a classic shot of Warren Clark getting whacked in the nuts and pushed in the That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> and the language in it as well, I just love it. Like, I've got a pain in the Gulliver. Brilliant. Mm. What, that's fantastic. Like, I'd love but, to bring up and say that. That's ripped directly from the um, 
that's from the material. Yeah, that's from the book. And I, I think that's another key element of Kubrick. He picks some great works to Subversive go. Subversive yeah, works yeah. To, to translate. It, yeah, I mean, like picking 2001, which, again, R.C. Clarke is a very well-known writer of that, at that time, but picking that story and turning it into nothing, Nothing that he did, pretty much, from 2001 onwards... Everything's adapted from source material, yeah. literature yeah. of some sort. So it's always an adaptation of some sort. Yeah, I mean, Spartacus was from a book in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite. When you think about it, he actually didn't do a lot of original stuff. It is all no. kind of tran- mm-hmm. uh, adaptations of stuff. But translating it onto the screen is mm-hmm. his golden talent. I think. I mean, for a man who only won one Oscar, it's quite surprising that he wasn't recognised more. No. Mm-hmm. Next film along the. Uh, so long, a lot of people have seen this one, but. It's it's the one that like people know as part of his catalogue, cat, cat, but I feel people are put off by the, the runtime like Spartacus, and maybe the fact it's a period drama. Barry Lyndon, um, Barry Lyndon is an incredible film and probably his most beautifully shot film. I don't think I've ever seen a film look as incredible as Barry Lyndon. It is a feast for the eyes because he's literally look he's looked at paintings of that era and recreated that on screen even to the point where the characters maybe don't move at first so you just set up that scene of like this is where we are and then when you actually are on that scene it's almost very much close ups so it doesn't it almost feels like you've directly dialed into a painting and you're mm. obviously in scene by scene um, in terms of the story um, it's a three hour <sighs> epic about it, it's going back to his epic stage isn't it yeah it, it's a it's a period piece about period piece about an Irish lad who rises his way up into wealth and aristocracy and turns him into a very horrible person. And whilst it's only a PG, it's actually one of his most brutal films because the transition from characters that should be quite a caring lad into this vicious, quite nasty character who ends up with nothing in the end. It's, it's classic Kubrick. And just everything about it, it just feels like one of his films. You know, the music isn't stunning. I just feel like it's one that people just don't, Give enough time to. Yeah, when you're sort of talking about why people skip it, it's one that I haven't seen, and it's precisely because it is a three-hour period mm. drama, and that just puts me off it entirely. These so. costume moves, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the first Kubrick film I actually saw. Really? Yeah. And then kind of saw things after, because I kind of like it. Because again, it's a, it's a bit. It, there's some hangover from um, Clockwork Orange in, in terms of way, the way some of it's constructed. Um, but I think I don't know how I originally yeah, um, saw it, but I think it was the first one that I saw, and it kind of keyed me into that kind of sense because, like you said, that attention to detail. I mean, like, which is beyond belief. Like, yeah. even the lighting. So when it's all pretty much natural lighting, it looks like a dog ninety-five sort of yeah. thing. The light that he when he's filming people in in the in the houses, or mm. you know, just it's it's by candlelight, and that's how it's meant to be. It's not that it's not litter. It's genuinely candlelight yeah. that's lighting these scenes, and that's incredible to see. I think this is the first the film that also as well, Kubrick started to get that very perfectionist mm. reputation reputation yeah. of like. 20, 30, 40, 50 takes to get it to where he wanted it to be. And I mentioned as well, like earlier, about the casting. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember who we, we were. Leonard Roster's in it, yeah. He's in that again, yeah. But at least as far as the Spartacus cast is a bit yep. of an unusual cast. Ryan O'Neill wasn't considered to be like a Kubrick leading man at the time or a leading actor, so to speak. Um, I think he's very good in it. He said it ruined his career. I think I think he was cast well. I feel like 
because I feel like the character always has this. He's meant to be good looking. He's meant to be charming and charismatic, and I feel like he pulled that off. I, I think he's like, right for the role. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people forget that he was in it, like in Kubrick, because he's kind of been written off because he's not a very nice bloke, really, isn't he? And Harvey, but I, I mean, it's that and what is it, Paper Moon? Is yeah. is two big known films, mm. and that's more due to Tatum rather than Ryan, I think. Paper Moon. Yeah, but he, I feel like he was a bit unusually cast in that. But I don't know who else would could have pulled that role off at that time. Uh, yeah, tricky really to think he was kind of that right kind of actor for it what's interesting as well is that I don't think this film would have come to light because Kubrick wanted to do a Napoleon film mm. and he pulled that idea and the, and the executives of the Hollywood executives weren't behind him because I think it was a film called about Waterloo was it or Pete not Pete yeah, Waterloo it was Waterloo that, so. that bombed so they kind of scared him yeah. off doing Napoleon so he went down the route of doing the Barry mm. Lyndon story um I suppose his experience on Spartacus would have helped with that, though, because, again, it was a very much strong period drama, an epic period drama. And you probably learnt quite a lot on that, on how to, to recreate that as 18th century England. I mean, I always feel, I feel it's nice that he did a period drama, and that was part of it. You know, his, this repertoire of films he's got, he did that genre, and he did it well. Moving along to his next movie, then, the movie that has been parodied a thousand times and might be the definitive horror movie for quite a few people. And again, with iconic shots as well. Yes. Yeah. And iconic characterisations. It is The mm-hmm. Shining. Yeah, The Shining, which was... Um, I brought this up on the show before when we did the film fight stuff, and I used it as my horror film, uh, because it is just such... You know, all this, you know, we're talking about Kubrick being a very visual director. That movie conveys its horror a lot through its visuals. Mm. You know, you've got the big shots of these of just the empty hotel so you get that sense of isolation there's no one around you just and you just see you know the cast looking small in these huge spaces well there's not actually that much violence in the film if yeah. you think about but it it's genuinely quite horrible though yeah yeah like the, the woman in the back yeah you've got but that i think that's what it is when because it's got these long shots of just not a lot really happening but it's off everything is off yeah, um, and then when the violence happens towards the end, it gets that more sh- all the more shocking for it, just because it's you know something's going to happen for like most of the two hours, and then it all kicks well, off. Shelley Duvall said many times that it almost broke her making this film, didn't it? Oh, it was I mean, kind of the shot after shot after yeah. shot. But from what I've heard about the treatment she received in that movie, it's not really surprising. Yeah. I think what makes it work is what is different from the source material. Mm-hmm. Whereas the previous stuff has been much more kind of in line with, with it, I think mm-hmm. the stuff that he adds yeah, yeah, and takes away in the in the Shining to make it a cinematic experience, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. works in its favour. Because Stephen King hated this, oh, yeah. um, for some reason, because it just wasn't close enough to his no. book, really. And considering that they did do like the TV movie adaptation a few years later, which wasn't very good which was much closer to the source material, it kind of showed that Kubrick did make the right choices and uh, differing. I might get slated for this, but I don't think Stephen King's that great a writer. Mm. I think he's found a formula, and a formula mm. that works very well, I, especially I would, for horror books, but I don't think he's plotting... I would actually agree with that. You know, I've not read many of his books, but the ones that I have read, I like the story's good, but the writing itself 
Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, the whole Gunslinger series, which is a great series of books up until the yeah. fourth one. I could not get into that. Yeah, and so. it's like he just decides to drop a massive thread he's built up for four books to mm. go back in time to tell a completely different story. Mm. And it feels like an intermission in the middle of a series of books. Mm. And I think that's Stephen King's badness. But as I said, Kubrick fixed this. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that I like in The Shining is all the kind of use of like matte painting. All the kind of... Obviously, he perfected his art as a special effects director mm. yeah. in 2001. But a lot of the miniatures and matte shots that mm-hmm. they use in, in The Shining are great. I mean, the, the, well, the first the, 10 the minutes of 2001 art. <laughs> yeah, but the the lift sequence yeah. and stuff, the, the oh, use yeah. of miniatures in that is, is oh, brilliant, and all perfect. the kind of the way, just the cinematic tricks that he uses in there to give I mean, you that sense of foreboding and and emptiness. It, it's things like when you've got like Danny going around it on his tricycle around, and he just rounds the corner, and you've got the twins. The way that shot is fantastic because mm. it's all like just it follows him around and then just stops. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the shot. It's the one where the camera pulls backwards, zooms in. Yeah, the crash zoom, he uses that so much in this yeah. to give you that false perspective. Yeah. What none of us have mentioned here, though, is whilst obviously we're attributing it here to Kubra, yeah. I mean, this film is partially made by Jack Nicholson as well. Because oh, yeah. this is the first time, if you think about the roles, we've talked about Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon and Malcolm McDowell in Top of the They weren't big stars, you know. Malcolm McDowell was doing okay in UK, but he wasn't a well-known American star, I'm not, from mm. what I've read to believe. And Ryan O'Neill, he was a soap actor, I think. So the, he cast people who weren't necessarily at the top of the game. But Jack Nicholson came off the back of like an incredible like decade in the 1970s yeah, and put yeah. in one of his... You know, stuff like Chinatown, yeah, this is the yeah. first time Kubrick really, I feel, cast a huge apart from the Peter Sellers back, you know, since that mm. era, he's cast somebody huge, and that made the film as well. The casting was spot on with Jack Nicholson. I think my only problem with Jack Nicholson is at the beginning of the film, he already looks like he's gonna go insane because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's just Jack Nicholson's <laughs> face. I do, I do also love the fact that this film. Has Scatman Carruthers in it? <laughs> who, who, whatever film he's in, is is brilliant. He's pitch perfect as the as the character that he gets to play. Um, but yeah, The Shining's just it's a good movie. It's again, it's another one that I kind of wouldn't say is strictly horror mm. in, in the traditional mm-hmm. sense of it. I think this is a thriller with horror elements into yeah. it. Again, it's that sense of foreboding, that building up, that darkness. I mean, we were also looking at the fact as well that this was, I think, maybe Kubrick's first big commercial film. Like, this was the move into mm. his films being more commercial and being a bigger a bigger thing. So people mm. knew him, people were interested in his films. But I feel in the 70s, like, there was still kind of... He didn't... Well, this he was 1980, wasn't, wasn't it? So yeah, it was this the was kind of like, we can really yeah. sell a Kubrick film to an audience with this particular film. Well, I mean, you can see that, like I said, he cast a big star, but it's also based on a, you know, popular author at the time. Mm. And that definitely does sound like... Yeah, for commercial was this, of it. Was this coming after Salem's Lot had been a huge success, or was it around a little? Was this before? Well, this was eighties, so when was Salem's yeah. Lot? Yeah, I think I, and I think like Carrie had already. Yeah, so I think the whole the whole yeah. Stephen King thing had, had yeah. kicked off in a big way. Yeah. Um, Salem's Lot was seventy nine, so yeah, it was years so, right yeah, afterwards. So, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's it's his most well known movie. Mm-hmm. I think. I don't think it's his best film. We can get on to the best films yeah. in the end. Alright then, next one up, Vincent D'Onofrio's <laughs> big film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Black Men in Black. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Full Metal Jacket. Um, yeah. Not an easy film to watch. Uh, I don't particularly like war films, but I took this one on for the team. Um, I don't particularly... I, I, I do enjoy this film, but I don't enjoy this film, again, because I'm not a fan of the war film. Yeah. But at the same time, I am a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick, so I appreciate seeing him make his version of a war film. I would definitely agree with this, because I really enjoyed the first half of the movie, where it's all in the training camp. But the second half of the movie, when they go actually to war, couldn't stand it. Just because I can't stand war films. And it's that set, you know. It's a very good war film, but I don't like any war films. So. I think it's a very different take on the war film, yeah. doing that tr- basic training for half a movie. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't even consider that. That would be done in a ten minute but it scene. it's the best part of the movie. It's, see, I, I prefer the other half, yeah. with the journalism side exploring the war. Mm. But it's very, it, it is, it's a two-part movie. I mean, <laughs> like, you go back to Barry Lyndon and things like 2001, and they are, 2001's five-parter, you yeah. know, almost five sections, Barry Lyndon's two parts, they're cut up by an intermission. This feels like there needs to be the classic Kubrick intermission of this because it is a two-film thing, mm-hmm. and genuinely, the first half is horrifying. It was it's the, that the, I feel like the first half shows more the horrors of war than the second half because mm-hmm. the bit in the toilet with Goma Pyle is horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's scary, you know. It's it's unpleasant. It's it's a scene from a horror film. What oh, goes yeah. on in that particular scene? But the horrors of the way they get treated. I feel it's more horrific than the stuff that it's you the see de- it's the, in Vietnam. It's the dehumanisation yeah. of these people to make them soldiers. I think, I think that's why I prefer the first half so much, well, because it is like that chipping away at the psyche. Mm. I, th- I think he found a golden egg in Ali Ermi there. Oh, yeah. oh God, he's, not, he's a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> it, but he was... He was a drill soldier, wasn't he? So yeah. he's, it's like there was no better person you could have put just, into I that role. the story behind his casting, where he yeah. was brought in to train up an actor... Yeah to be the drill sergeant but he was just so much better than the actual actor he cast him anyway he literally recreates that role in the frightness yeah uh, years later he, he recreates that role in everything <laughs> he's just and a very shouty man yeah it's a, a funny one because again I, I have at a certain age so what for me the, the thing with Full Metal Jack is it, it, was, it came out at a time when there was an awful awful lot of, of look back uh, Vietnam films mm. there's there a whole raft of them from all different kinds of angles so you'd got you know you'd obviously got platoon you'd got this you'd got um hamburger hill you'd got clint eastwood doing stuff and things like that so it was an interesting time for how america was struggling with this particular point of its history and i think the fact that kubrick was was kind of almost ostracized to the point that he was having to make this independently in the uk gave him a certain amount of freedom to tell a story that was a little bit more on the nose as to to what the reality of that is for a young man in that situation and it doesn't come across as that kind of slightly jingoistic hero movie like you were saying there's no there's no there's no no real hero in in a kubrick film and i think whereas a lot of the other um vietnam movies at the time were kind of yeah trying to trying to come to terms with the with the, the fact that this was a war they never actually won um Full Metal Jacket really does kind of dig into that the the psychological damage that mm-hmm. that conflict had done to to a country. Really. It's, it's things like when you've got them chanting about their rifles. Mm. It's just creepy. Yeah. To see that, and I think that's what gets that across really well. The surreal ended as well when they were singing the Mickey Mouse song, and mm. I feel like as well in terms of the choice of Matthew Modine, who you know he's a, he's an alright actor, not big at that particular time, but I feel like. 
I feel like his character, I feel like in, t in normal war films you've got this like macho kind of man like, I'm going to war, or I've got a wife back home. It's not, it, with what Kubrick did with Joker, it, it's, he's actually quite likeable. He is a, he's a bit of a prick, let's face it, and it is hard to, um, it is hard to get on with him and stuff. Um, sometimes they agree with what he's doing. Uh, Ryan, you've distracted me from what I was saying because there is a man called Kirk Taylor in the film, as we discovered, <laughs> as our friend uh, DJ Captain Kirk. Um, but yeah, I feel like you know he's he's a likable protagonist, but he's not on the right side of things. You know, he no. does make mistakes and he he does say and do stupid things. You don't necessarily agree with all of his actions, and that's what I like is that Kubrick created a character that he does feel a bit like. He doesn't have, I want my sad wife at home and missing me. Yeah. Like, there's none of that with it as a war film. There's no, no home life story. It's just literally, this guy's a bit of a, a jackass. He's in the war. You're following him. Whether you agree with him or you like him or not, he's your protagonist. I, I think it comes back to Keith's point of America comes to term with a war where they are, in fact, the bad guys here. Mm. They're invading somebody else's country against communist idealism. And that's the whole thing with that. Again, it goes back to his early career with McCarthyism in the 50s, and it's this cycle that goes through his life of yeah. communism in America is always a weird thing where it's kind of they were treated that much with the Cold War about how Russia and communism is the ultimate bad guy, and it was that all the way through his life story. And I think it also had a great poster, yeah, to go with yeah. it as well. An amazing just, poster, yeah. Just the iconography of that poster is something. Yeah. If you showed it to somebody, they would know <laughs> what it was. I mean, then a 12-year gap until his final movie, which we'll briefly touch on. Briefly? It's a, it's a, it's a superb film, right? And it's, um, I feel like people hate on this film more than I, they should. I actually think it's... Uh, I've never watched it all the way through because I have a curious hatred for Tom Cruise. Stopped at the sex, did you? It's just Tom Cruise. <laughs> I just don't like him as a leading actor. I feel like this was a, this came at a good point of Cruz's career, though, than some of the films he was doing. Like, so he had Mission Magnolia. Impossible too. Yeah, we <laughs> had like Magnolia and stuff when this came out. So it feels like this was like a point where Cruz was kind of like picking some good roles. Well, it was it was the Hollywood power couple. Oh yeah, because it was him and Nicole Kidman. So it was that there was the interest in them as as a as a real life couple. In a, in a film that delved into the psychosexual nature of, um, you know, depravity and stuff. So see, you you're saying psychosexual. It's not. I think the whole it's a it's a dreamscape because the way Kubrick makes the film is Tom Cruise almost just wanders through scenes in this dreamlike quality. I don't. Okay, yes, there's a sex cult going on that he goes to, but it it's not. He doesn't do anything particularly inappropriate he just witnesses events happening that I, w I wouldn't even say are psychotic it just ends up in a really weird club I suppose you could say it's almost it's a similar voyeurism to what we got we got in Lolita yeah that idea of the, the you can look and think about the, the, the desires you want as long as you don't act on them it's, it, it's, a, it's a film about marital problems. It's a, it's a marital drama film. People class it as an erotic thriller, and they're like, oh, you know, it's the predator. No, it's a film about a marriage, and he's analysing a marriage and what people ha happens to people when they hit that point of boredom. Well, you see, you, that was funny you should use that word, because that's, why, that's my problem with the film, is it's just boring. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I genuinely... 
I'm fascinated by it because you just feel like you're drifting through this strange mindset. And like, do you know what's funny about it as well? It's it, it, it's not a sexy film whatsoever. Tom Cruise doesn't even get with anybody in that film. He just drifts through. He kisses a couple of girls for the whole film. He doesn't even sleep with anybody else. And like, he's presented as like, oh, he goes on this big sexual epic. No, he just drifts through these bizarre situations in a dreamlike thing, thinking mainly about his wife getting well, screwed by a, a, a sailor that didn't even have her. It's honestly the heart of it. It is well, a bit this, of a soap opera. This is toward the end of Tom and Nicole's marriage, actually, because they divorced in 2001. Mm. So, do you think it was a case of acting follows real life and this triggered... <laughs> life imitates life. Yeah, and it was triggered in the actually, we're not that happy together and doing this film might have triggered that. Could have been. I feel like... I feel like people. Some people say it's unfinished because he'd obviously died or making it. It feels pretty finished to me. I feel like it's it's Kubrick through and through, really. And yes, I, I guess there are subtle symbols to the Illuminati and like you know things like that in it. People look for this in it though. People are, that's what people are wanting. I think that's what he wanted people to dig in and think. There's more more sinister things. Like, even the conversation at the end. If you haven't seen it, spoilers. The conversation with his friend Victor where he kind of warns him off investigating what he saw more. I feel Tom. I feel like Tom Cruise's character has totally got the misunderstanding about what he saw. And I think that's what Kubrick is telling us as the audience. We've had total misunderstanding of what we saw. You're looking for something that's not mm. there. Because there's something about a dead girl, and Tom Cruise is like, that's the girl who was some... the sex party. And it's not. It's just, just a coincidence. And I feel like that's Kubrick saying, like, don't try and analyse this for more than it's worth. It is effectively a marital drama. I think and it's, it's superb. Well, I think it's known more for it having one of Kubrick's very rare fluffs in the mirror scene, and that's about it nowadays. And is he in the mirror? It, it's one shot where you see Kubrick reflected in a mirror yeah, behind the camera. camera. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, which, is, which is... not He's known for his perfectionism, yeah, so you think... Yeah, it's just frightfully dull. Yeah, unfortunately, I just... That didn't, I can't get on with it. But I feel like I feel like some people hate on it, and that's being his last film, people are, are to want to discard it. But I feel mm. like it, it's an equally a strong I think, piece I think of work. You're right. It's Kubrick through and through. The stylism and the and the and the kind of um, underlying sense of it's a Kubrick film. It, it's just a little bit. Doesn't really go anywhere, really. It's, it's quite, it's quite long. It probably yeah. could do. I feel like if he was still alive, he probably would have shed a few. A I think it, it, time off it, it probably died in the editing room. I think mm. as a film. But it, it's. I feel it's a film that's worth rewatch. There is, there's a lot in it, and if you look at it from a different perspective, it's not about sex cults. And um, you know, it's not, it's not about the Illuminati. It's literally a guy's insecurities of his wife, considering she may have had, maybe having an affair. Yeah. That is what it is. It's simple. It's cute, Kubrick. It's the most simple film, really. I think as a catalogue of work, you could do worse than watch any of Kubrick's movies. I think well, whatever whatever your desires, whatever your interest is, there's a Kubrick film. For a director, 13 films, and to hit such a range of films, even though they're all pretty long runtime movies, to hit such a range over such a short amount of films because any other director nowadays you'd expect to be doing two three films mm. a year <laughs> currently because mm. the way that Holly, the Hollywood machine goes yeah. and he, you can tell he was very carefully selecting what he wanted to produce okay so I guess to wrap up this epically long conversation <laughs> yes. we've had um, 
Because we are the best film podcast <laughs> in London. What, what, what is your favourite Kubrick film? Ryan, start with you. 2001, without a doubt. I'm a sci-fi fan, and it is pretty much one of the most ultimate sci-fi films. Yeah, I have to agree with Ryan. My, my personal favourite is 2001. Uh, it's somewhere between A Clockwork Orange and The Shining, I'd say. Sitting on the fence. <laughs> uh, I'm going Barry Lyndon. It's a, it's a, it's a masterpiece. Uh, it's absolutely stunning. I'm not a fan of period dramas, but with this, it's just a sheer brilliant tale of just a man's descent into just being an atrocious person. I absolutely love it. And I can, I, I can see why it. you might empathise with yeah, the character. No, it is defining work. Guy Halford as Barry Lyndon. <laughs> Yeah, the lucky Barry Lyndon. <laughs> You're not that lucky guy. <laughs> so, let us know if you have a differing or opposing thoughts, or you agree. It's Guy's favourite day of the year. Keith, do you want to do us a jingle? Uh, oh, I wanted to do the record breakers. It's record breakers. Guy's going to go to the discovery to buy loads of records he can't afford. Bank it's account breakers. breakers. Yeah. <laughs> It's final day. It's record store day. It's record store day, which guy isn't guy's favourite day, but he likes records. Guy likes it when he can flog on his records to somebody else in, in <laughs> twice the value on eBay. Wow. Well, Brian has asked me to get him one. I might not tell him how much it is until I charge him double. Um, yeah, so I got a little list of the highlights. We do this every year, like some of the geeky stuff or just some of the general essentials to buy on the day. If you can actually get them, or you're going to queue outside at like 4 a.m. in the morning, um, or you've got friends in high places like I do. Um, right, so let's let's kick off this little list I've got here. So first, uh, Ace of Base, the signed seven-inch single. It's probably going to cost you like 15 quid. <laughs> nice, but what geek, a, nice geeky single to get us in here. What a killer tune that is, though. Um, <coughs> A reissue of a soul uh, R&B album from the 60s, Alice Clark, long out of print. This will be worth getting if you see it. It's not got a nice sound. Um, definitely one of the ones I'm after. Uh, Bob Doro, Multiplication Rock. So this is all the stuff that was sampled by like De La Soul and stuff. You know, Three is the Magic Number. It's nice to look. I've, got, I've got a copy of this originally, but they're doing a repress of this. It's, that sounds quite interesting. Yeah, it? so it's kind of like hip-hop. A lot of hip-hop artists sampled this record. Uh, so imagine like a cool version of Sesame, cooler version of Sesame Street with some cool beats and stuff. Um, Captain... How can you get something cooler than Sesame Street? <laughs> That's true, uh, especially Franklin. Yeah. Um, Captain Beefheart, Trout Mask replica gets a long deserved reissue. Get this while you can because this record scarcely gets repressed, even though it's really famous. Um, imagine that will sell out really quickly. It's just a mental record. It'll take you about five to ten listens to actually truly understand it but get that record uh, a couple of Doctor Who releases Destiny of the Daleks and Galaxy 4 so, so these like, aren't actual albums of Doctor no, Who themed music they are audio novels yeah, it's basically <laughs> what kids did in the 70s and yes. taped it off the telly yeah yeah. Uh, Gorillas are reissuing their iPad only album. The Fall, the fall is oh, getting okay. uh, getting a reissue. So this is when Gaiman was touring America with um, Plastic Beach, written, composed, and made on an iPad. Yeah, that yeah. You, like when he was like, "Oh, we've got a new toy, so let's make an album." Yeah, it was literally like just him in, in between gigs or whatever, just 
this room is like how he made an album. Pretty much. There's, so. a, there's, a, there's some good tracks on there. There's a, there's a killer track with um, Bobby Womack on there. I can't remember what it's called. Bobby mm. and Phoenix or something like that. It's just stunning. Um, Grandmaster Flash and Furious 5 reissuing The Message. Um, One of the greatest mm-hmm. hip-hop tunes of all time. So that's coming out as an album. To be fair, worth getting. But if you don't get it in the day, I reckon you'll probably get a copy on Discogs for a couple of quid. So mm. maybe... In look at it, but if it's expensive, don't buy. Um, some live performances from Jeff Buckley called In Transition coming out. So it'd be quite nice because like anything from Jeff is worth hearing. Because obviously he died at mm-hmm. a young age, didn't put a lot of material out there. I mean, his version of Hallelujah is now like the the ultimate version for most people. More the version for X Factor contestants. Yeah. Um, but no, anything from Jeff's worth hearing, and that voice alone, you yeah. know, it's just like it's incredible. Uh, David J, V for Vendetta graphic novel soundtrack. I thought Keith, you might know a little bit about that. I don't. From Bauhaus. So you've made a soundtrack to the graphic novel of V for Vendetta. Yeah, I'm trying to think about do I even recall this from, from the time? I feel like you might be buying that, though. I don't think I will, because it'll probably cost an absolute fortune. That is probably <laughs> wow. true. Uh, Keith's face was like um, um, Leonardo DiCaprio in Django and Chains. And first you have my interest, now you have my attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, soundtrack, uh, David Anram, the Manchurian Candidate soundtrack Man- in the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> the Manchurian Candidate. That's how you say it, isn't it? No, Manchurian candidate. It's one of the ultimate. It's basically what did I say? Manchurian candidate. I said Manchurian. <laughs> it was. It's basically what Captain America: The Winter Soldier is it's, um, themed on. I would say Gene Hackman, and you should add it to your collection immediately. Yes. Uh, Bridget Bardot uh, album and reissue. BB La Legend. Mm-hmm. Bridget Bardot is worth buying. Uh, soundtrack. By Juice People, Disco Godfather, seventies <laughs> classic exploitation. That'll probably be uh, that'll be worth a get. A dumbest release of the day I've put here. Pink um, Fong, by any chance? What? Pink Fong. No, surprisingly. No, Kaiser Chiefs. Oh my God, seven inch single. Who, who in their <laughs> right mind wants that? Who really? That's like that's like. Oh, I'm going to the glass to see the Killers. Oh my God, Goy, I can't believe it. <laughs> Um, the League of Gentlemen live again, so that's going to be a live recording of their recent shows, I believe. I um, think the League of Gentlemen lost its way quite some time ago. And controversial, I like Series Four. Um, oh, do you know what this one took my fancy? I'm never normally into these when they get released, but um, Madonna La Isla Bonita Supermix featuring Crazy for You on B side. That kill a couple of tracks there, especially a longer version of La Isla Bonita. Now wish Viv was here, because Viv is a massive Madge fan. So I think that's one of her best songs, and I think that is... Uh, you it's one see of her worst songs, it's got saxophone in it. So. <laughs> see that, buy it. Um, Manson, who recently reissued their sixth album, they're releasing a, want to re-release them on the EP's release at the time, Legacy. It's mm-hmm. a great track, always release good B-sides. The biggie for me this year, Twin Peaks Season 2 soundtrack. So this is the music from the original series, second series. So they've obviously released the original classic first series soundtracks and the new series but you've never been able to get Series 2 on vinyl, so this is quite a big one. This is going to complete your collection, basically. Oh, yeah, basically, yeah. So if you're in the queue and you get to that for me, I will punch you. Um, <laughs> they're reissuing the Monty Python Life of Brian soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Uh, Basketball Diaries, a Leonardo DiCaprio 90s film. That's it's actually sad. a really good film, and I actually do say put it into your collection. Soundtrack it's one of his better works. Ratty. You look curiously not. On that one. Yeah, I'm just uh, yeah. Keep going with the list. I'll, I'll 
This this is a random one. I'm not sure who would want this. Um, soundtrack to the film Coneheads. You know the thing with Dan Aykroyd. What have you done to your car? It is it's a bit of a cult movie. Yeah. Why would you need the soundtrack? Um, Mad Max Two soundtrack, which I think has got a lot of music from Brian May. So. Not the Brian May that you're thinking. <laughs> oh, of. is it not? No, that's oh, right. okay. It's not the same guy. It's no. better than Thunderdome. We'll put it there. Right. Um, another biggie for me. Um, Lost in Translation soundtrack's finally getting a after, pr- real issue on vinyl. Yes, after many, many bootleg copies have yeah. been circulated. So I, I had um, a copy of a not legal <laughs> one myself, uh, which I then moved on for a fairly substantial I price. Air. That album yeah. that basically most of the soundtracks lifted from is a great album anyway. Beautiful, beautiful soundtrack. Uh, New Jack City soundtracks, so that's going to have like, a lot of like New Jack Swing on it from uh, the early yeah. 90s, yeah. so yeah. it'll be worthwhile yeah. purchase. Um, Ryan, the big one for you, the Office Space soundtrack. One of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, if you've not seen Office Space, this is the... Bur- this is... This is the album that sums up frustration working in an office. <laughs> Mike Judge as well, quite Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he has some amazing picks of music. He's done that through Silicon Valley as well. Some amazing sounds he picks in there. Um, Roy Budd, Get Carter soundtracks, getting a reissue. Quite nice. Not the terrible remake with Sliced Alone. No. Um, this is going to be the one that sells out and it's going to be the one that goes for stupid prices online. It's going to be the hardest thing to get on the day. Ryan, you made a joke about it, but genuinely, it's gonna, it's gonna go. People are gonna want this, and it's gonna Pink be hard. Fong Pink Fong, Baby, Baby Shark, Shark single. That is going to. If you are trying to get that on record store day, you know that's good going luck in to you. every DJ's box for eternity. Yeah, good luck to you if you can get a copy of that. Every every single child DJ is gonna want that. I'm so glad I've never heard this song. <laughs> <laughs> be, be glad. Be yeah. glad. Ryan, another biggie for you, Turtles in Time soundtrack. Great, great video soundtrack, video game soundtrack. TMNT arcade games are some of the best games that came out in the 90s. Uh, another soundtrack release here, Ghost World. Uh, is okay. Kind of, okay. There is a superb Bollywood track at the beginning of that film. So I get, forget what it's we called. We get two ScarJo soundtracks. You do. I've got the track on vinyl myself, but for that, for that Bollywood track alone, that is worth picking up because it is absolutely killer. Um, a bizarre release here Mickey Mouse Disco I so this is one prob- of those 70s reissues isn't it that's going to be filling charity shops around yeah literally the world. you could probably yeah. get this for a pound uh, I literally think it's just Mickey Mouse singing disco songs I think I've come across like a sample of something from this really like, something I've listened to sample of like I do Something now want to hear Mickey album. Mouse sing Boogie Wonderland. I, th- I think it was like a disco version of It's a Small World. <laughs> nice. Or something like that. Couldn't they just use Bee Gees and just slap Mickey Mouse's <laughs> face over the top? Uh, I've been told this, because uh, my, my good friends at this group already had this come in, some of the early stuff. Uh, is the South Park bigger, longer and cut Ooh, soundtrack? That is actually a, quite a solid soundtrack, actually. Apparently going to retail for £150 because it's got a 3D sleeve. Ooh! Yeah. Not. Uh, that. I, I, yeah. I feel like that is twenty years too late. I'll just find it on Spotify. Thank you very much. Yeah. For that. I mean, you know, you can sing that the best song on there quite easily as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that song. Uh, soundtrack to the Faculty getting reissued. So Faculty is a great film that doesn't get enough love. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, soundtrack to the Sopranos finally getting an issue on vinyl. So mm. worth getting. Um, Compilation series called Too Slow to Disco, released in a series, uh, one called N- New on France. 
So they release quite sort of slow, chilled out yacht rock stuff, like compl- nice compilations. But they're going to be looking at France for this one, so they've done Brazil before. Um, probably some interesting stuff on there if you're uh, if you're, you're DJing like me. Probably find a few choice cuts on there to play. And again with this one, Brazil Classics, compiled by David Byrne of Talking Heads. So you know that's going to be brilliant, given David Byrne's choice of music and influence. Um, Weezer are releasing that god-awful bloody thing they released a few weeks ago that we spoofed the picture of. Was it the Teal album? Yes. Yeah. Those stupid covers. But they also are releasing uh, all the B-sides from the Blue album, which is actually when they were actually a good band. Um, probably worthwhile picking Please up... Please direct all your Weezer hatred to Guy I mean, let's Scott face it, I'm it. not going to receive a lot because everybody knows that Weezer is a joke now. Um, even Weezer know that they're a joke now. Headlining um, Glastonbury, out here. <laughs> <laughs> they, they become a cover band of themselves. It's one of those bands that become a cover band of their greatest hits. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, Blue Album B-Sides, worth looking into, some good songs from that era that didn't make the actual album, so a Weezer Weezer recommendation, I actually think is worth getting. And finally, as it's been the theme of today's show, there is an amazing Kubrick 7-inch single coming out, which has got a theme to a clockwork orange on one side, and the theme to the shining on the other, but it's done, it's it's like a triangle-shaped vinyl, and you've got like the clockwork orange eye coming out the middle of it, and it looks stunning. And I think that's going to be one of the collector's pieces of the day. People are going to be wanting that. It does look I mean, stunning. Kubrick is a cult director and his mm. stuff always mm. goes extremely well. So mm-hmm. and There's lots more stuff um, on the website. Sometimes have a little recordstore.com. Is it recordstore.org or .com? Or dot .com, I think. Dot .com. Um, the day's on Saturday, the 13th of April. And if you are free that day and you do want to come and celebrate records today, come to the discreet where me and Captain Kirk, who was on the show a few weeks ago, We'll and also in Full Metal Jacket. And in Full Metal Jacket. We will be doing a DJ set pretty much most of the afternoon throughout the discourse. So if you want to come and hear some really cool, unique music and probably some random crap in between. Yeah. And you can buy some other records that you can. are extortionally expensive and all the good stuff is probably only going to be available in America. Yeah. Well, this is the whole thing. Record store days just get people in through the door, and yeah. the Discovery is one of those fantastic places where you can lose hours looking. For I'm sure the Discovery will have a couple of Bross records out. Yeah. I'm sure they. I'm sure they that. probably. They will. They are partaking in the actual Russell Day stuff as well. But go and actually look through the boxes and buy some decent stuff. Yes. Uh, offer, I mean, there's off, always some fun stuff for a quid as well. It's true. Offer, offer them a handshake when you get in there and get blank like Ryan did the once when he went in. <laughs> so but then I was offered a beer straight away. You were, you were, you were. <laughs> yeah, there'll be there'll be drinks and yeah. stuff on the go. So. Uh, yeah, I've done this group 13th of April. Come and meet me. Don't mm-hmm. touch my records. I might get annoyed at you. Let guy go first in the queue, please. Yeah. <laughs> if don't you, if sideways walk in front of oh. me. <laughs> don't pivot and turn into the <laughs> shop. Don't clap loudly when I play something that you liked. If, if people want to reach out to me to do a flash mob uh, at the, the Discovery <laughs> in aid of Guy's various uh, annoyances. <laughs> A whole bunch of us getting together to sidewalk and uh, loudly clap. Yeah, clap loudly. Make make lift noises. We, we should all, we should all wear backpacks. Yeah, backpacks. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on the Geeky Brummy Show this week. Keith, where can we find you online? You can find me online, my personally at hardlock underscore hotel. Blah blah. That's that's uh, ampersand underscore uh, question mark uh, 
presented sign. No, it's hardluck underscore hotel on Twitter without the underscore pretty much everywhere else. And you can also find me now regularly looking in a hundred different directions, uh, presenting my comic picks of the week on YouTube. Um, so you can see what kind of a weird looking fella I am in real life. There's some great comics you do select. You are stunning. Yes, there is some great comics you select every week, though. So read yeah, there's, um, it's not just Marvel and DC. There's always well, the thing about it is, is it's generally books that I'm actually picking up and buying myself. So if I'm if I'm saying you should read it, it's because I'm reading it rather than it's the the, the, the comic that uh, is probably going to prove to be popular. So some of the choices will be weird and unusual. Can I just point out that Don's playing with her cat on TV? <laughs> The video yes. to Madonna Express <laughs> Madonna Express Yourself is on the TV behind. If you've not seen the video before, it's Madonna and lots of cat action. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, where can we find you on? And you can find me on YouTube at Bob Pet Ferret and on Twitter at The Cheap Ferret. And like Keith, I also do a roundup thing of games, but that's just in text format on the website every Friday. Mm-hmm. But you, see, can also... you, you look much better than I do on, on uh, YouTube. I'm terrible, I'm like yes. You can also see Lee <laughs> playing games for the first time as well on Bob the Pet Ferret, yes. so check those out. Yeah. Guy, where can we find you when not behind a set of decks at the Discovery? Uh, tweet him once a week on the YouTube <laughs> <from me> Twitter. <laughs> and at Guy underscore Halford. And Instagram, do you want to plug your Instagram? Uh, Vinyl Guy H. Are you going to set up Blu ray Guy H as well? No. It's just too much effort all the time. Wow. Just just expand the brand. It's, it says vinyl in the title, but you expanded the brand to now include cosmetics and Blu-ray. Pl- Plastique guy. I home. might call yeah. myself... Um, blue Screen Brum. Brackets, <laughs> brackets Radio Show. You could be Blue Screen Brum. You can find me... Stuck in a lift with Mario, uh, ordering games on eBay, and waiting in line for the killer's tickets. Or at Brian Parrish on Twitter, at Brummy Gorman for the food stuff. And you can find us all, as mentioned before, Geeky Brummy on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, geekybrummy.com. And don't forget to go and subscribe to the Geeky Brummy YouTube channel. Yeah, just subscribe to all of our various services. Yes, and YouTube. YouTube. Yep. And uh, leave us a review. We've not said this for a while now. Yeah. Give us a review, please. If you like the show, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps. Keith Harbour. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything left over from those loot boxes? I don't know. Lee's not bought them. He's hidden them away. I, I, I meant to bring them today. And I forgot <laughs> well, may, we, may, we, we might select some random tat. Yeah, if somebody finally, other than uh, a pseudo-identity scot-free person... <laughs> or David internet, Price. I mean, <laughs> drops us a review. Yes. Uh, or if we, we might be able to get you some Gotham Series 1 posters, some Marvel shoelaces. Yeah. Yeah. If we can hit 100 YouTube subscribers as well, maybe we'll do a random drop for somebody. Yes. Or a shout-out to the 100th person yes. online. I can mention them. I have a mug that people might want. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, other than, I think the only person that wants that mug has now passed away. <laughs> For tax purposes. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Get out of my house. I want to watch Dairy Girls.